Well, hello, everyone. I am Chris Martinson here, obviously, of Peak Prosperity and Financial University here with Paul Kiker of Kiker Wealth Management again. Hey, Paul, welcome back from uh, Mexico, where you were doing some Pacific Ocean fishing, I guess, huh? Baja yes. area? It's, yeah. it's nice to be back, Chris. Good to see you again. So the Baja area, and uh, I caught a rooster fish, not on the fly, but we did catch a lot of uh, Dorado mahi-mahi on the fly. So that was my first experience and something that I thoroughly enjoyed. Fly fishing. I have to do that someday. I, I love I love doing that. Um, So, uh, hey, things happened since you you were gone that week. It was it was a busy week. <laughs> it, was, yeah. it was a week where a week where decades happen. And and one of the one of the big things that sort of landed in our community at Peak Prosperity was going through at least part of the book, The Great Taking. All I really went through on that part was the part about understanding that an owner, an owner of a share, like I, let's say I happen to have, um, I can't mention any names, but let's say I have an energy company and it's in my TD Ameritrade account, which actually means a Swiss Schwab. And there it is. There it is, Paul. I, it's, I, I can show you how many shares I have of any given company. And there they are. They're mine. Right. Well, this book uh, by David Rogers Webb said, not so fast. Um, you don't actually have ownership. What you have is what's called a security entitlement. And already, as soon as I read that, I was like, oh, that's weasel wording. I know I know legal weasel wording here. I've been around the block enough to know that two things matter in, in law. Everything exactly is written down in the pure definition of that and how that gets interpreted through case law in, in the courts. And then what they didn't say. Right. Yes. So I could not find anywhere as I dug through all of the documentation because I, I have accounts with a, a, a couple of brokerages. I couldn't find anywhere in there where they actually said I own anything. I couldn't find the language. That was a, a gaping negative space in the conversation. Right. It, it's like when you when you go to the law, um, the UCC, and then you go to Title Eight, which defines what happens to banks when they go into a resolution process, they never once, I searched the whole document. Well, I used the search function. The yeah. word depositor never shows up. Mm. How do you define what happens in a bank bankruptcy workout process and you never use the word depositor? That's a great question. Because you're not a depositor. You're an unsecured right. creditor. <laughs> right? Unsecured creditor. That's right. Yeah. So. Anyway, I just wanted to talk about that a little bit and find out because I know, you know, as soon as I found about this, I actually called you. You were in Baja. I'm like, Paul, we have to talk about this. Tell us what, uh, <laughs> you know, what, where, where you, where you're at with this now, having just a few hours of exposure to this whole thing too. Yeah. So I spent every moment that I had internet service uh, researching to look at the details of transfer agents, and I've got a couple of meetings scheduled with Fidelity next week to. to answer some questions that I have and speak with the legal team. And, you know, the initial conversations you have, it's like, they look at you like, well, you don't have any issues. I'm like, no, I, I want to speak to the person, the legal team that knows. So that's in process. You know, what was fascinating to me is I've always known that, especially if you have a margin account, if you're, if you're utilizing, you put your securities up for margin, or if you're using options, you have to have that margin account that you are putting that up for collateral that they can utilize your shares somewhere else. So, I've always leaned towards the side that if we're on defense, because at some point, you know, like Buffett said, these derivatives are weapons of mass financial destruction. And you did a right. great job on your last educational piece Thanks. there is to, OK, well, let's just do away with the margin and we'll go back to a top one account. So you're not putting that out there. So there's a lot of questions that I have and I already have some ideas on some things that we can do to help people. 
I'm trying to overcome the hard part of how do you be adaptive? You know, how are you adaptive, right? Because if you pull it out of the system and, you know, uh, have those shares, you have, it's a lot harder to move, just the logistics. So if they've done this, the way that book lays it out, which seems to be irrefutable, um, then then they've made it so hard. The pain of stepping outside of that system and still being adaptive with your assets is is like climbing Mount Kilimanjaro. But there's got to be a way. So we're searching yeah. for that right now. Yeah, this is going to be a process to figure this out and what the actual steps are that, that we can take. I, I mean, I can still imagine even knowing the risks that I would leave money in portfolio accounts for me. This is a personal decision, right? I'm not advising anything here simply because that represents sort of liquid working capital, right? But I could imagine other scenarios, like, like, like for instance, um, I do happen to hold some gold and silver in various vaulted um, areas, uh, and that's a decision I've made. But the lion's share, mm -mm, uh, that, that's, that's under my hot little hands direct control it's in, in some way, shape, or form, because that's the only thing. I, I'm, I'm, here's the thing that bothered me the most about this, Paul, was, was I could never actually, and this I'm going to, um, assets of David Rogers Webb when I get to interview him in about two hours from now. So like, how do we find out like who is the senior claimant? Like, can anybody actually answer this question? Like, so there's a pool of assets that have been collateralized, and then those have possibly been taken out and re-collateralized or rehypothecated is the fancy ass term, right? And mm -hmm. on and on and on and on. So that it might be when you actually, if you could freeze the system and chain that whole ownership structure out, you might find a single financial asset actually has 10 entities that have some claim on it, right? And some yes. big, long. And so the question is, who's senior? Mm -hmm. You can't answer that. I don't, I bet you anything they can't answer that. Nobody can. It, it would require lawyers, courts, mm -hmm. and time and money to figure out who actually was the senior owner of that. Because I'll bet you it's all just, it's all just nebulous claims on paper. It's just legal stuff, Le pure legal fictions, I bet. But, and what I'm curious to see is if if the custodians are actually going to take the effort to have the conversations with us, because yeah. you know, their, their business as usual, it's like, oh, you've got this this one person's making a comment, asking some questions. And I'm sure there's more than just one. Right. But yeah. but I want to push it as far as we can push it to get those questions answered, because, yeah. you know, and, and, and Dave Fairtex made a great comment uh, on the thread from the post there. He said, you know, talking about Treasury Direct and. You know, if you have some assets in this great taking, if they pull this off like it like it looks like they've set the system up for, then you're going to have assets when no one else is has. So it's incredibly important to have a portion of your assets to where it's secure as you can possibly at least do everything that you possibly can. And then, like you said, mm -hmm. I agree, it's, it's going to be nearly impossible for most people to have it completely outside of the, the system and spend you know, two or three weeks trying to transfer over so you can make a make an adaptation in the portfolio as fast as things are moving in the markets now. So just right. kind of like kind of like I've talked about ten percent gold that you hold hold physically somewhere uh, that you can have access to that's your fire insurance on the portfolio. Now this is another area that we need to have fire insurance on the portfolio, and depending upon individuals' resources, some more than others. Yeah. Yeah, there, there were some really surprising things in that book, which I, I've I've got to chase down. But he he backed everything up with uh, references, and I've I've gone through as many of the references as I can. I have a certain capacity for 
reading legal stuff I don't understand where every third word I'm like, what do they mean by that word? You know, um, and that word has a meaning that has a paragraph somewhere else where it has words in it, which I have to go search for the meaning of those words because the words matter and they use very funny uses of words in legal terms, you know. Um, yes. So what I think a word means is not what it's defined as in the law. Right. So that creates a, a disharmony in my understanding. So <laughs> digging through it all, the part that shocked me was because I, I chased this one down as far as I could. And it seems to be true that they had this thing called the safe harbor act right which was it's it's good sounds good right it's like it's like the the healthy forest act or the patriot act it's actually doing kind of the opposite of what it's the title is it's just how they roll right um what the safe harbor act finally did was it removed the litmus test if you have if you're an entity with more than 50 billion in assets it removes the litmus test to resolve this question, which is, were those assets that that just that just got encumbered and 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 seized and claimed by a senior process, were those subject to fraud? There were two tests, right? One one was was it overt fraud, right? Was was some did something happen? Or two, was a direct officer of the company involved in the moving of that asset within twelve months? They stripped both of those out. It's like, wait a minute. You mean there's no fraud protect? You, you mean like J.P. Morgan, to just pick on a name, could like funnel all of these assets out to Jamie Demon's brother-in-law? And then, oops, magically all those assets disappear? Yeah, that, that's okay. That's still the senior claim in this story. That's it, It's actually shocking, right? That is absolutely shocking. And And one thing that we know for sure is you look at what has been done under the guise of COVID for profitability and power. Imagine what they would imagine how much more power they would have by being able to take advantage of those loopholes. That's, that's shocking. I know. I know. So it, it just means it is what it is. This is how the game is set up right now. So the next set of questions, which I'm really glad you're starting to resolve is okay. What do we do? Because I, I don't think there. I don't doing nothing is not an act is not an option. You got to you got to have some sort of a response or at least be aware of what you're facing here. I think, um, you know, and and maybe maybe there's some loopholes in there. You know, we'll get clever like, mm -hmm. oh, yeah. Hey, I, I, I know my shares in all those energy companies just got lost to Schwab, but I wrote options and bought the options. And so therefore, I have the senior claim on those. <laughs> <laughs> that would if it's as simple as that that would be wonderful <laughs> so, i don't know i'm just a spitball in here we'll right. work it out <laughs> well i mean between but, yeah. between the conversations we're going to have your focus the intent you know the community awareness the answers out there and we will find it the good thing is is mm -hmm. we're looking and have a vested interest to look because yeah. you know i mean time could be short and and throughout history, what what's classic bankers done throughout history when 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 they were on a gold standard? You know, you go deposit your gold in the local bank, and they loan out a whole lot more than what they have, and all of a sudden nobody has anything except for the bankers kept all their profits. So, yeah. um, you know, this is just a twist on what's been done throughout history before. True, and he he had a a part of the book that I'm as familiar as I am with this history. I did not know it or see it framed this way, but. You know, the Federal Reserve actually created the first Great Depression. While, while banks were failing, they didn't lend. They just sat on everything, right? And then in 1933, this was the new part of the law that this caught me. He said, notice that they passed the, that one of the great sins when, when they had to do the bank closure. And so the FDR put a bank holiday, right? And mm -hmm. then they made gold ownership illegal. 
because in the text he pulls out the text of the act said because you know people are hoarding gold like that's you hoarder you that's why you know why the economy is not working because you're you're sitting on your gold and you're not spending it you hoarder so they forced everybody to give it to the federal reserve and they did and you know what the federal reserve did it with it they hoarded it they sat on it they didn't make loans until thousands of banks went out of business and then they anointed the banks they wanted to keep going and then they recapitalized the system and off we went right so yes. so that was when you looked at it that way this was pure mob behavior this was just ugly bare knuckle business legally <laughs> it was Take a great taking yeah the great taking the great taking take it all and give us all the power and and you're a servant and you know, it's interesting because we've been hearing about, you know, what, 2030, 2032, 2032, you'll, 2030, you'll own nothing and be happy. That's all over the place. Right, from the, right, the, right. It really puts it into perspective, doesn't it? Because, you know, when they would say that, I'm like, okay, what about those of us that actually go through the gauntlet and the emotional stress and and have the discipline to keep our eyes on the goals and the objectives and the risks, and we don't get sucked into the emotions of chasing what's taking place you know with with markets that will just continue to run in spite of in spite of the obvious underlying weakness what about those of us are they going to take everything from us and i would i guess i had a false confidence that hey if if we're prepared and we're in the right place and we sidestep that we take advantage of it we're going to be okay but according to this Mm -hmm. do everything right and you still weren't did not you weren't in the right position they can still take it from you so there's a way there's a way we'll find it there is and and uh i a lot of people's brains on on the thread at back at peak prosperity around this went the same direction mind in which is i better rethink having a mortgage um you know and i know that's not an option for everybody but but you know because it's like ah i got a mortgage at one of those tasty rates from from yesteryear you know and i can earn more on on you know treasury notes right now so doesn't make financial sense but i'm looking at this and you know part of the book he talks about what happened in cleveland so one of the cleveland major banks was actually anointed by the fed and thousands of other banks closed down so what happened was in a bankruptcy for a bank they have assets and liabilities the assets well those get stripped out and put off in a receiver the liabilities get wiped out the liability of course is your bank account so there were all these cases he he of people whose money got taken because those were the liability of the bank. The money that they had in savings got wiped out, but their mortgage, well, that was somebody's asset. Those got transferred and they and they um, ended up losing possession of their home. So think about that. I just don't even understand how there wasn't like some mass revolt and there weren't like rotary lampposts with people dangling off them. You know, I don't yeah. quite know how that didn't happen, but but think of that, right? Which is that through some legal fiction, through some actions taken by people to specifically harvest your assets from you mm-hmm. they did that because it's it's so-called legal <laughs> you know yeah. it's like <laughs> well i would assume that if it's quote legal you've got the the court system that just basically says no this is a legal event you know you signed the paper you should have known this you should have read the fine print so you mm-hmm. we're not going to allow this to come forth because they control the system to an extent yeah, and that's oh, the hardest. I'm, I'm old enough to remember, Paul, like like 2009 and 10. Remember, so Wells Fargo and Bank of America both get caught in what's called the robo signing scandal, where they 
are forging signatures mm-hmm. on mortgage documents to originate them, right? And to do HELOCs and other sort of refis and things, right? They So I've seen those boxes. Those boxes say it is a federal felony to, da, 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 right? So yeah. they committed felonies. In, in the case of, I think, Bank of America it was like 109,000, you know, identified felonies. Zero people went to jail for that or faced any sort of criminal action. That's correct. That is correct. And th- and that's the greatest sin, I think, coming out the other side from our leadership and our justice system is there was no justice. It was like they they took leaps forward in their power and their ability to to gain control over the people during that period of time because you know, and then you have small local banks. I mean, in our our local area, you had our small local banks were taken down. And in mm-hmm. several circumstances, they needed to be taken down. They had poor leadership. But had they given the requirement, okay, you locally, you replace those leaders, the managers of those banks, you replace that board, we're going to backstop them just like we did the banks that we hand over to from former regulators, then our local community banks would have been able to survive and thrive. But that doesn't give you centralized control that a entity far away or a city city far away, because if you the more centralized that control is, the more they can say, hey, I don't like that little area around Chris. I don't like that little area in North Georgia there. These are conservative people. They're standing up against us. So let's just shut down the lending in that area. And because we're such a debt based society, then that that really limits the economic growth and opportunity. So they have the ability in central planning to be able to squash little areas. I mean, maybe I'm going too far down that rabbit hole, but that's what I see as the end game and and you know local managers with no power versus a community bank that has the vested interest in your local community. Yeah. Yeah, no, I totally agree with that. And of course, this this now finally connects that dot for me where I understand, oh, this is how the central bank digital currencies get introduced, right? There's a great panic. Oh my gosh, Paul, it's it's terrible because reasons your local bank is now frozen. We're so sorry. Mm-hmm. However, because we're, we're, we're very noble people over here at the Fed, what we're going to do is we're going to offset your losses over there in a new central bank digital currency account. Just pull up your phone, accept the T's and C's, and... You're, you're made whole. Yeah. Only now they actually have the power, right? The power, which is they don't have to shut off the bank in a whole region. They don't like you because you tweeted out a, a, a mean tweet that made fun of Jerome Powell. And uh, next thing you know, you know, th- you're, you're under their control. So this whole thing has always been about control, right? Mm-hmm. And so this is why it's so important, I think, to be talking about this because that sets the frame. And, and it, it honestly, I get it. It, it makes me feel really anxious. And I, I hope it's not too alarming for people, but it is what it is. Here's my belief, Paul. They have grand plans and they think they can just sort of keep going this way. But they haven't been in touch with real work in a couple of generations <laughs> that is true and they don't know how the world actually creates value it just sort of arises because of their genius you know legal fictions um i'm worried that they break the system and that's why i think that you know people can whatever wealth they have they've got to protect it they've got to make sure it's managed really well as best we can given these circumstances that but i think people need to understand we're at the end of a of a what i'll call a grand credit super cycle yes it's a big long one it started right around august 15th 1971 but but that was the final untethering 
We've pretended with this fiction that we can just expand credit forever. We can't. It's a math no. problem. We've discussed that before. So the question becomes, you know, what happens when a super grant, you know, credit super cycle ends? And, and I think it's as simple as this. You either own or own um, pieces of productive assets or you mm -hmm. don't. Mm -hmm. Why has Bill Gates been buying up so much farmland? They just try and like hoist that off like it's just like, a oh, you know, haha, it's a rich people thing, you know? <laughs> No, I mean, uh, I mean, farmland has been profitable, but not as profitable as your magnificent seven stocks. So there's a reason. Yeah, you could say diversification, but why would you walk away from one of those the best performing stocks as the largest holding when you're that connected with the company? Because right, you know, as a business owner, mm -hmm. you know that company more than anybody else does. But years ago, he started purchasing farmland. Well, I mean that's the most productive asset that you can own manufacturing facilities, the most productive assets that you can own. You know, you own that, you own all of the future income, the dividends that can be generated off of them. So, so yep. yeah, it's, it's, it's about control. It's about control. And yeah. uh, going back to the mortgage though, the one thing that I, that I do encourage people, yes, there is an arbitrage between 3% mortgage and five, five, five and a half percent treasuries. Yes, you can profit from that. That is a very shrewd decision to make. <laughs> However, if it's first by inflation, then by deflation, we will rob you of all your wealth because basically that deflation would have to occur, correct? So that these institutions mm -hmm. collapse, they're bankrupt, and then they've got your collateral wrapped up so they grab it all. If you do believe that's a concern, is it really worth the spread that you would get between that three and that five or five and a half to carry that risk, especially if you have enough other assets that can produce income for you? And that's where we have to be careful yeah. that if we're seeking wisdom, we need to invest and make decisions to be financially sound with a with a the most solid foundation that we can, because when that earthquake comes, we need as much of an earthquake a proof foundation we can yep having that mortgage paid off being out of that system and having you know having that title in hand which you're still going to have to do other things as you talked about yesterday you know to give yourself every potential possibility to put you and your family in a position to one where you're okay two hopefully you've got assets when other people don't so you can be a kinsman redeemer and take advantage of of, of the opportunity so that hopefully the wise can gain more power to be able to combat that system because they're, you know, uh, that's the important part of this is to try to make a difference in the future and make our families and country a better place. Yeah. Yeah. The the reason I know that we're over the target with this conversation is that when my, my most poorly performing pieces on Twitter elsewhere is when I directly contradict or, or um uh, otherwise cast dispersions upon the federal reserve. They're a little, uh, they're a little, let's say they're just a little thin skinned about that one topic area. Um, and, and so it, you know, we, I, I was just scanning to the side to see if I had the slide up on this deck I've got over here, but I don't, but remember I, I showed just what the effective federal funds rate was for 25 years. And it, there's these long, there's 15 years, Paul, where it's basically zero. It's mm -hmm. less than, it's less than a quarter of a percent, right? That I call that monetary vandalism, right? But that gets everybody herded into this box canyon, right? So let's just think about regional banks, right? So March of 23, Silicon Valley Bank, SVB goes down, some others, right? Signature, et cetera. 
So how did they get in trouble? Well, they got in trouble because they were trying to, they made a bunch of loans, but mm -hmm. their capital was stored over here in these sort of really low yielding treasury bonds, right? You know, what did we get down to on the 10 year points, five, six percent or something? I think ridiculous. it was a ridiculously low number. I've got that over here somewhere, but it was a ridiculously low, low yeah. number. So your SVB, you got some 10-year treasuries on your books. They're, they're hanging out there. And the Fed forced you to take those at that place, right? Then, oops, surprise, you know, 10 years are now yielding 4%, right? And all of a sudden, you have a run on your bank that comes from somewhere. People are like, we'd like our money. And you, you, you're you going to be taking probably a 20 25% haircut if you have to sell those 10 years at that, at that new rate of 4% when, you know, you bought them at 0.5%-ish. Right. Yes. Yes. And then, oh, the dust settles and we find out, oh, surprise, JP Morgan, you know, acquired SVB. Right. Took the assets. <laughs> they were ready and took advantage of the foolishness of the leaders of SVB. Oh, and SVB happened to be involved in the crypto industry, too. So that was a win win. Correct. Correct. Um, yeah. But it's presented as if, oh, you know, these regional banks just they're just not safe. Right. But but this was when you strip it back, this is the Federal Reserve. Their policy forced this yield chasing behavior, right? And and so they, we had junk bonds yielding a four handle, meaning a four percent zone, right? Which is just un, un, just no, we're not being compensated for risk. So they forced everybody into things where you were overpaying for assets, and then they repriced those assets. Now that sounds they're saying, oh, look at this inflation, because you mentioned the this is your term, your phrase kicked it off for me. That that um, I think it was uh, Jackson's term. The process yes. of deflation, though, what those banks were facing and anybody who was holding any of those underwater, you know, those too priced, too expensive assets, that's deflation. Yes, right? it is. I had $100 billion worth of bonds that are now worth $80 billion. I just poof, $20 billion deflated, right? It just disappeared, right? Mm -hmm. But it's an act of policy. It's a policy. I was screaming about this the whole way through saying this is going to result in trouble. Like this is just, this is how we get in, but it's not trouble. If we look at it from another way, this is not a bug of the system. It's a feature. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, and, and the book really puts it into perspective. So you think about in warfare, you know, there are so many psychological aspects to go to warfare, mm. but you know, you want to, if I was to go to war and I'm not a general by any means whatsoever, but I want to put the enemy, if I can drive the enemy into an area where it gives me the greatest advantage and then the greatest weakness, and especially the more patient you are, you know, Shun Tzu, Art of War, everything that goes there, mm -hmm. that's a planned event. So when you look at this and you think about the Great Reset and everything else, it's like, this is really, I mean, we, we're the enemy and they're coming after our assets for control. It really changes the perspective when you look at it, because for the longest time I've thought, well, this is just foolish human behavior. You've got a lot of individuals that are in charge that don't understand history. They're caught up in what's going on. I want to look more impressive mm -hmm. in front of my friends here. So it's all about a power and greed grab that takes over. But this really puts an evil intention on top of what I, what I and my optimism hoped was just foolish human behavior. You know, the Great Sea Bubble, the South Seas Bubble, you know, the, the railroad bubble, the housing bubble of 2007. Now we end up in the bubble of everything. And just like those banks were herded into those assets from an asset management standpoint, 
we'll have to participate in assets from time to time because that's just the momentum. And for three or four or five years, there may not be anywhere else to go. But if you understand the risk associated with it, as soon as you get those fractures that are around the corner, you know, I like to use the, the, you know, grandma's cookie jar analogy. You know, you walk into the kitchen, mm -hmm. my grandmother could not stand for you to eat a cookie before she fed you. So, you know, you walk in there, you don't know if the creek coming from the other room is her walking in that direction. So you pull your hand back, you know, if she's in there, gorge on the cookies all you want, you're going to get in trouble when the cookie jar is empty, but at least you participated. Managing assets has to be the same way. You know, mm. you pay attention to what's coming your way so that you can try to protect and play the game, but also, you know, we have to play the game by the rules that are forced upon us, unfortunately, but um, uh, also be wise stay up and protect it just it, it completely it's a different it makes the stakes a lot higher yeah so may, maybe this is just what happens late stage sort of like you know end of the credit cycle super super bubble everything bubble kind of a moment maybe maybe but uh, you said an important thing in there which is and i felt this acutely which is i feel like i'm the enemy here of of my own country so so that means that there's somebody i'm in opposition like we're not in this together we're not trying to make the world a better place and we're not playing by a fair set of rules you know um so that so that we can leave behind a better world for whoever's next i feel like these people are just bottomless greedy bottomless mm -hmm. yeah. right and so you know i have a frame i could look at this and i could say okay this is the kindest i can be i'm not going to get all biblical here I'm just going to go about, it's just money, right? Hey, it's nothing personal. We're Monsanto. We're just going to poison everything because we make money at it. It's nothing personal. We put your grandma on a ventilator and killed her because we made more money doing that. It's nothing personal. You know, it's just, it's just, if you know, whether it's Raytheon, I mean, it's the whole thing is just money, you know, just money. Now, my grandfather was a banker and so is my uncle and I still have people in the bank and his father and his father, like this goes way back. Yeah. And when my grandfather died, um, the, the, the town in Canandaigua, upstate New York, it, it was packed thousand people trying to cram into this thing because he knew everybody. He made loans based on character like mm -hmm. that. Like it was, it was a, it, it was a integrative part. And so he retired long time ago, but as the, as I started to become aware of financial markets and talk with him, he didn't recognize anything anymore. Right. He didn't understand what the world had become. Yeah. He served under Paul Volcker for three years at the New York Fed He because they have rotating positions for regions, right? So he was there for a bit. Um, and and I'm not going to pretend he was some deep insider, but back then it was actually a legitimate. They were trying their best to be part of. They were they were a part of society, not apart from. You know, yes. they were integrated. They weren't they weren't parasitizing it. They were improving it. Right. Something very bad went off the rails. Um, in the last 20, 25 years, I would, I would submit. Well, and I would agree too. You go back and you track all of our problems into the early seventies with, with the Bretton Woods uh, situation. You gave the date earlier. I can't ever remember the specific date, but uh, you know, it's a slow creep forward. And those who mm -hmm. know what are taking place surround, you know, put individuals that are like-minded like them in positions of power. And it goes back to like, I was having a conversation with a, a good friend physician here recently. And, you know, he's, he's finally woken up to what you've been telling everybody for some time. And he says, you know, I just trusted the wrong people. 
So, you know, they take advantage of all the individuals that are wanting to do good and, but they never make it to the top because they're, they're not like-minded like those who want to take control. And, you know, and like mm-hmm. your grandfather, I mean, being a banker and being a, a prudent wise and a man of integrity during that period of time and telling people, no, look, your, your character is not good enough to loan on because I'm, I'm loaning money for the whole community that have deposited here. They've loaned me this money so that I can loan out to you to make the community a better place. You know, but yes, this individual needs to be loaned upon. That was that community and relationship. That doesn't happen in central planning. Central planning is so detached from from the average individual that they meet that it is just business. And and you know what amazed me about the book that he talked about is how little oversight and how few people were involved in the making of these decisions. There was really no oversight. I mean, did I miss that, Chris? Did you see the same thing? There's no oversight. Two two dudes, two guys wrote all all the relevant case law i think for for this stuff yeah so unbelievable Unbelievable. it is it is it is so i'm flabbergasted it's hard to flabbergast me it is (laughs) i was like anyway well i'll talk to him about it and see see what more um can happen from that but but it just it did sharpen for me this idea that that okay we're gonna have to figure out what our what our responses here are and for myself um, I think they're, you know, it's, it's a game in essence, right? So if it's, if legal bulwarks help, you know, I'm thinking about, um, all kinds of things like, what do you do with your mortgage title? Do you slip it over into a, the other parallel structure called the allodial title structure? Do you investigate putting houses into trusts, irrevocable trusts? Would you double layer that? Could you think about a, a private membership association as a, as a third layer? Is there some way to invoke um you know religious exemptions and protections because there are there are still some if it's all about the laws might Mm -hmm. as well just put not that it'll matter because you know we've seen this right it's you're only as as safe as the judge (laughs) you get in front of (laughs) that's right yeah (laughs) you know some are sympathetic some are hostile you know what are you gonna do that's right and depends on what your circuit court is in the in the area too so you know one thing i was thinking about there's always they always give you a way out. And that's, that's what I'm wondering as I, as I go down, as, as we do this research and start discovering the conversations with the attorneys and the brokerage houses, you know, you mentioned putting a house in an irrevocable trust. So if you place that house in that trust, the trust is going to inherit the cost basis you have on the home. So you're going to lose when your heirs earn that house, that stepped up cost basis, but it also protects it from credit. There's so many other benefits that go there. So the very wealthy and those that are connected utilize those all the time. Mm-hmm. But the average individual has been so um, taught, driven, um, funneled into the thought that, well, I do not need to pay those taxes, right? I mean, you know, you because that hurdle for most people because they do not like paying taxes. They don't like how it's being, th- those dollars are being spent. They disagree with mm-hmm. that is enough of a hurdle for the average person to not understand the big picture importance of taking and placing in that trust. So there is something that's going to have to be given up per se to be able to be prepared, but that's what sacrifice is. We get up and go to the gym. We, we do the things that we, we save today for the future. We've got to have that Mm -hmm. fine balance of making sacrifices now to make sure that we have a solid foundation in the future. Yep. 
Yep. Totally agree. Well, um, uh, can we turn in our last few minutes, anything in the markets catching your eye as, as you came back and, and scanned? Um, yeah, I was keeping up with the markets last week when we were gone. I mean, this rally over the past couple of be- weeks has just been, or past week has been fast and furious. You know, the question is, is it a short covering rally? What I thought was interesting is something that I've seen before is, you know, just a, a basic technical fact. The NASDAQ closed behind, below the 200-day moving average, and then we pay attention to the 200 EMA, which is exponential moving average. And then all of a sudden, we had this massive reversal the other way. You know, it, it really forced a lot of active asset managers to move into uh, a principal protection mode. A lot of individuals raised cash. And all of a sudden, you get... You know, I saw a headline that came across the Twitter feed and a few other areas that says, oh, Zelensky's ready to negotiate. So it's like, oh, OK, well, all of a sudden, if the war in Ukraine's over, then we're off to the races. Right. And then you've got oil that has completely wiped out the 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 war premium here in the recent period of time and in, interest rates revert. So it, it took the Fed, you know, most of this year to convince the markets that we're going to stay higher for longer and then in a matter of two weeks, the market's like, we don't believe you. We're going to, you know, redeploy capital because you've got this, this major concern about a year-end rally. You've got seven stocks that have caused this market to be up for the year. The other mm-hmm. 493 are basically even, if not down, depending upon the day that you look at it. So asset managers, investors, it seems like there's frustration for everybody. Your your long-term bulls, the market has not broken the highs from, you know, two years ago. Gold's basically at the same place that it was two, two and a half years ago. Um, you got treasuries and bonds that are down substantially. So this is a very frustrating environment for everyone. And and here now, this fear of missing out is a pretty big deal. And I can't, I cannot say that that this may be an initiation rally that carries into the spring, right? I mean, maybe it carries in, maybe it carries into the end of the year, but the question is you know, is, is, um, is it sustainable and what are we going to see early next year? So this is a very tough time. We're at least out of the danger windows per se. We've got a little bit of economic data. I'm curious to see what the market's going to do between now and next week. Cause really what the bulls need <laughs> is CPI to be flatter down. And if CPI is flatter down, then that's the fuel to say, Hey, we've got this Goldilocks situation. But it really looks like inflation is entrenched and sticky. So we'll find out a little bit more next week how this market's looking. Now, we, we are still, we're seeing some deterioration in the fundamentals under the market. John Huspin has been screaming a lot here recently about, you know, still mm-hmm. potentially being in a trapdoor event. And he he is unbelievably articulate explaining this, just the... He- He's a good egg, that one. <laughs> oh, I love that. You know, every time he puts something out, I'll read it three or four times, you know, and I usually pull a dictionary out once or twice just to make sure I've learned over time. But he's so articulate and he's so what yeah. he, he lays his argument so well that this is a period of time where the internals of the market are are iffy um, and things could turn on a dime. That, that year-end rally may not necessarily come to fruition, even though that's what most people began betting on a week ago. So the market's cleared well, out. We should consolidate. You, yeah, you know, because you you made a great point before, though, that that it's it actually it, things don't get serious until the Fed starts cutting rates. Right. Yes. You know. Yes. Yep. And there's a little lag there. So it's something I've been tracking because I don't I don't believe the Fed sets rates as much as it follows the market. And the part of the market mm-hmm. it follows is the two year. And so mm-hmm. I was actually getting a little. Let's see here. 
Uh, let me know when you can see that. Is it up? I can see it. Yes. Yeah. So, so I was watching the two year really start to trundle down here from middle October. And here on the third, I started to get of November, I started to get concerned and now it started to go the other way a little bit. So I'm not as, as sure, but I thought this might've been the, the beginning of a turn because that was a 28 basis point move when the fed was still holding pat and talking higher. And the two year was calling BS on that and actually wandered down more than a quarter point. So I didn't know what to make of that. And it hasn't wobbled up a lot since then. So that was a low of uh, what, four, eight, something, four, eight, three, maybe. So mm -hmm. we're up, what, 10, 13 basis points from there. But we're still not back at 5%. I don't know. I don't know. Um, so there's no no clear signal yet to me in this story. We, you know, no, we've got I... shipping. Shipping mm -hmm. is down. Uh, you know, they had to revise every employment number down, of course. But the BLS is putting the BS and that that, you know. <laughs> acronym i don't know what to make of any of that stuff um but it just if you know we th these high rates have to be doing some damage out there they yes. just have to they have to be and so one of the things we're seeing is your average uh, purchaser of a home there's a lot of sales falling through the local real estate agents I'm talking to here, even some of the local real estate agents I talked to in, in Baja, Mexico. So Toto Santos is on the Pacific Ocean. You know, you're wealthier having no problem right now. But housing is priced at the margin. It's kind of like stocks, right? So if you only have two transactions in a year and those prices are higher, that holds those appraisals up. So once housing starts dropping on the margins, if it does, and a sale falling through is not necessarily a lower price. That's not something that's going to hit the appraisals yet. So we are starting to see damage. Real estate agents aren't making as much money. New construction still going along, but there are cracks at the scene. And the optimism, because this has taken so long, I mean, the, just the sheer amount of money that the government printed during COVID and, and the emotional impact that that put into people just kind of spending tomorrow, borrowing money is only... Uh, pulling purchase in the future forward till today. So at some point you're going to run out of that forward future that you can pull forward. Um, you know, higher interest rates are starting to wear. Car prices are starting to settle down a little bit, not as fast as everyone anticipated. So the trajectory of a slower economy has not abated. It's not accelerated like we thought, like a lot of people thought that it would at this point, but it's still slowly, persistently continuing and these interest rates are, should start, the lag effect should really start kicking in about now till February, and we really see where we are. So yeah. we're, by no means are we out of the woods yet, no matter how optimistic or or uh, the market's panicking to to print good numbers for year end. But, you know, yeah. the real investors are paying attention to where we're going, not just the year January 1st, December 31st day. Yeah. Um, I was on a uh, a panel last night with a couple uh, number of people. Two of them made a really interesting pair of points about real estate. One of them is Jason Hartman. Um, he does a lot of real estate investing. The other is Joe Brown, who, who was doing uh, a lot of sort of macro analysis. And together, it was an interesting point. So Jason said he's not surprised by house prices holding up, even though mortgages are high, because you have this problem, which is that people can't afford these new houses, that the housing affordability is like stupid low so they're not building a lot of houses because new houses it's really hard to get people to buy stuff they can't afford right right but the people who have houses they have no incentive to let go of those houses because if you're holding a mortgage at three and you got to cough up and, and and dive back in at eight that 
no. I mean, it's just it's really hard. And and then Joe Brown made a really important point. He said, it you, it's not the decision do I rent or buy based on how much a mortgage costs me today versus how much renting costs me. You have to compare the cost of renting today to the mortgage you actually already have. And for mm. 113 million people, they have mortgages under the current rate that it would that they would have to pay in terms of renting. So there's it's just really froze the market. So there's not a lot of supply. Right. And like you said, if only one house sold in all of America, that would be the median house price, you know? <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> well, and the question is, everything is frozen. And those are those are really good points, very articulate. So everything is frozen. So at some point, you get this break. Now, this doesn't necessarily mean it breaks up or down, but a breaking and it becomes unfrozen and transactions start having to take place. And the question is, when when is that going to be? You know, that that momentum is still there and kind of frozen at this point. So this is a slow process. Um, it, it's still a very dangerous process. Just because it's slow does not mean that it's not even more dangerous right now than it was before. I think well, you uh, know who I feel bad for. I, I feel terrible for people our our children's age, because oh, if you want to try and start a household right now with interest rates at eight percent for a mortgage and very little housing to pick through that's way overpriced, deeply unaffordable. Again, this is an act of policy. Mm-hmm. The Federal Reserve has said, ah, screw the younger generation. Mm-hmm. Like financially, literally, uh, because we feel like rewarding these other people instead, or I don't know what their game is, but but I don't think they should be entrusted with that level of, of omnipotence in this story. They should not be able to choose which generations win and lose. That's that's yeah. totally unfair. Just they not should. right. Full stop. And and I think one of the problems is the baby mover generation just doesn't really understand what the younger generation is facing. And, I agree. And the reason I say this is about a week ago, I was sitting around having a conversation with three or four men trying to, you know, I was bragging on uh, a younger individual we've been trying to mentor, tough situation, try to head in the right, you know, help that child head in the right direction. We got to talking about the generation, you know, it's like, well, they're complaining. They don't want to work. They can't, you know, they're, they don't save enough money to buy a home. And I, I listened to this conversation go through and then I started challenging them. I said, okay, you know, when you came out, your savings had purchasing power. When you came out, there was all kinds of opportunity that was out there. So yeah, those who did not work in your generation did not do well. Those who did work did really well. But, you know, what incentive does this generation have? You know, if you really listen to what they're saying, yes, there are those that are lazy. They don't have quite as much work ethic as what the baby boomer generation does. But that doesn't mean they're all that way. There are very limited opportunities because unless their parents are uh, wealthy enough to pay for a college education and the cost of college has gone up so much because of the ability to loan and the colleges can charge pretty much what they want to charge. It's all a, it's all supply and demand. As long as there's somebody willing to loan, and there and and you know prior generation college education made all the difference in the world, and now you're coming out of school with all of this debt, and salaries have not kept up with the cost of living, especially since the 1990s. You know they're they're just constantly disheartened about the world and they don't know what to do about it. And a lot of times what people will do is they just give up. And it, and it seems like that's what a lot of this. So after that conversation, you know, those, those individuals, mm-hmm. like, well, I never thought about it from that perspective. 
And, and if I think if we look at it like that, the system is broken for that generation. There's just not much opportunity for them unless they're really connected in their families or have families that can make that burden easier for them. Um, you know, we're not going to see the work ethic out of them. You, you know, most people want to get out and work and get fulfillment out of what they do and make a difference in life. So, I mean, I, Maybe I didn't explain that as well as what the big picture looks like, but I think that is one of the problems with this generation is just lack of opportunity. You know, the American dream yep. is to get out, you know, buy a house and and start building, be able to go on a vacation. And what is it? I think it's 114 unusual wells put out yesterday. It's 114 or $15,000 per year in household income that you have to right. have to be able to buy a home. And that's only about 15% of the population. Yeah. Yeah. Um, one of my least favorite people in all of bureaucracy is Janet Yellen. Um, oh, my God, too. You know, she's she's uh, in Texas. They would call her a post turtle. Um, <laughs> and a post turtle is you see a post and it's got a turtle on top. And, it, you know, it's just it, its legs are waving in the air. And you say. Well, only thing I know for sure is it didn't get there by itself. <laughs> <You know? laughs> no. <laughs> she's a post turtle she's just she's just up there waving her legs around but a few years ago she put out a position piece this was in the context when she was still in as chairman of the federal reserve and and she said well there's three great paths to to achieving prosperity in the united states and one of them that she put out there was you inherit it and i'm like you lousy human being you right he act, you know that's horrible yeah said oh you know you start a business you know you you get educated, you know, or or you inherit it. I was like, ah, because because at the time she was busy making sure that people who had inheritances, those were exploding upwards because of the financialization. The Fed was printing money and through the process of seniorage, they were handing it out to Wall Street and surprise, the top point one percent was getting stupidly wealthier, you know, as a direct consequence of her of her policies. And then she said, oh, yeah, you know, if you really want to get ahead in America, one one good way is to make sure that your your family's already wealthy. That's insane. You post turtle, and that's as kind as I can be. Um, well, that that's her perspective. Um, but bringing her up reminds me of Stanley Druckenmiller and what he recently stated. And I really didn't think about it until I heard his statement that it was criminally negligent, basically, that our Treasury Secretary did not lock in longer term rates. You had Austria sell what a hundred year bond. And I remember thinking that at the time, but you get busy watching the markets and everything that's taking place. And then the, the more I've thought about that, she had a once in a lifetime opportunity to take our nation's debt and lock it in because if Austria could do it for a hundred years, what do you think the United States could do for a hundred years? Of course, more bankers probably would have blown themselves up, but um, you know, lock in that debt for a long-term period of time. That is a good fiduciary decision to make. Mm -hmm. For our country. Now, in my position as being a fiduciary for clients, if we had a family office and somebody hands me the funds and leaves for two years, we have to manage that for their their interest. We would have taken advantage of locking in, right? You know, if you lock in those rates for, for a long period of time, if we had to borrow those funds that are out. So it goes back to that parable of talents in the Bible, you know, two of those manage them well and one you know, out of fear of their master at the time, but this is just pure neglect. I mean, mm -hmm. I mean, you know, hopefully we'll see some consequences, but it seems in today's society, they're, 
they're protected. I think their day will come at some point. I hope. I still believe that there's justice in the system. I'm I'm optimist. There are people at some point. Hopefully, we will see it. Hopefully, we will. Uh, it's a great point. Um, and, and again, from this panel last night, Joe Brown made a made a point. He said, "You know, all those, all those, um, the repos. Remember, they're hitting one, one and a half, two trillion dollars, yes. right?" So it's like, what is happening here with these overnight refundings? And that's been whittling down. And so he said somebody explained to him that what's happening is that those are slowly getting whittled down because they're either earning five ish percent off of the Fed, but they can get five, three off a of short term U.S. paper. Right. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. they're taking that, you know, 30 basis points is a lot when we're talking a trillion or two. Right. So so all that repo money is coming out and it's down to about a trillion now. It was up as high as two. And he said, when that goes to zero, that's when the Treasury Department will now flip over to the longer end of this story, because right now they're just feasting on that money, harvesting that out on the short end. Again, super neglectful, absolutely incompetent. They're doing it because it's easy. They're doing it because they won't run into any Treasury failures. They're doing it because it won't pop the long end of the curve, which they're afraid of because that drives mortgages. It's an election year. So for not good reasons. They're busy harvesting all this excess money that the Fed printed and handed out to the banking system, which then round tripped it back into their excess reserve funds accounts, which the Treasury Department is now siphoning off in their infinite wisdom on the short end of the curve. So when they do have to refi that, it's going to be under much higher terms, guaranteed. Absolutely wrong, but don't think. So. Well, and, and unless the Fed continues to push and breaks the system to artificially drive rates lower so that they can take advantage of that of lower rates to lock it in before we have the next major wave of inflation. But what does that do to the average American that that is in modern portfolio theory, doesn't have a risk managed portfolio, is going about their lives and then, you know, the markets go down 30, 40, 50 percent so that the Fed can can cover up incompetence on the Treasury Secretary. I mean, maybe I'm reading too far into that, but I mean, all this is solved with sound money. If we could just get sound money again, it balances itself out. We don't need all these legal terms. We don't have to figure out who owns what and fictions and all that stuff. And 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 I wish we had sound money. I'll tell you why. Um, you know, it just it's been galling me, Paul, to watch my government, you know, through the Biden team, Biden and whoever's handlers are saying, you know, here's another hundred billion. We just need another hundred billion for some country out there. OK, mm -hmm. um, for war, we're going to blow it up because that makes sense to us. Right. It doesn't matter. They don't they don't need 100. It's like it's it's costless for them because they just siphon that out of the future. I want sound money. I want my president to say, look me dead in the eye and say, I'm going to have to raise your taxes by six percent next year because I want to send that to Ukraine. And I bet we have a different conversation, which would be appropriate. Right. Hmm. Yeah, exactly. Is that, is, is that the best use of that money today or should Detroit have lead free water or is that last Metro North trip? I took a real embarrassment. We should maybe upgrade some of our decrepit infrastructure here in the east coast i don't know right let's have the absolutely. conversation absolutely and then the american people have a vested interest as well instead of it being disconnected and slow consequences do not mean no consequences too often slow consequences mean much more severe consequences and it would force yeah. the american people to be educated and know about it so i'm with you i, I really wish we were on on hard money it was a much better yeah. time back then. quality of life was a lot better I agree. I, I do agree. I mean, it's still, it's not easy. Life's not easy. Never is, but, but at least you have a, a, a stable footing that you can, you mm -hmm. can begin to plan on, you know? So what well, would right. that?
Uh, Paul, uh, so good talking with you again. This is, of course, Paul Kiker of Kiker Wealth Management. If you have any interest in, uh, and you do, I'm sure, talking with a financial advisor who, who gets how you see the world, please go to peakfinancialinvesting.com, fill out a simple form, and Paul and his team will get right back to you. And uh, everybody who's gone through it so far, Paul, has just been singing praises, saying it's just what a breath of fresh air to be talking with you and your team. So Thank thanks you. for doing that. We've thoroughly enjoyed meeting just some of the best people I've ever met. So thank you, Chris. Uh, we're so excited to be able to help. All right. Well, good. Well, I'm going to prep up for my next interview. It's going to be fun. And uh, we'll see you next week, I guess. All right. I can't wait till the new interview comes out. So thank you, Chris. Okay.